Monarch, Legacy of Monsters, an Apple original series. The world is on fire. I decided to do something about it. On November 17th. This place, it's not ours. Believe me. The most massive event of the year arrives. If you come with me, you'll know everything, I promise. Oh my God, go, go, go! Monarch, Legacy of Monsters. Streaming November 17th, only on Apple TV+. This episode is brought to you by Undeniably Dairy. Dairy farmers are more than farmers. They're climate caretakers. They see water as a precious resource. Most farmers recycle water up to four times, from chilling the milk to irrigating the crops. And some even use technology to turn manure into renewable energy. To learn more about what dairy farmers are doing to make their farms more sustainable, visit usdairy.com. I just want to jump in here with a quick note about some changes that are happening. This podcast is now going ad-supported. What that means is I will be releasing select episodes from the hundreds of episodes I have archived now on Patreon and releasing them here. A lot of these were recorded a couple of years ago, during 2020 especially. However, I have gone through them and deemed that the parenting information was still really relevant. So just be aware that some of these releases may be out of order chronologically. Also, if you would like to listen to the podcast ad-free, you can still join Patreon. I'll still be releasing podcasts there with a few bonuses. One is that it will be ad-free. One will be that you get the podcast slightly earlier than everybody else. And I'll also be doing a bonus episode every month with a Q&A that's patron-specific. So if that's something you'd like to do, you can join for a dollar a month, and we'll see you there. Thanks, guys. Hey, I'm Jamie Glowacki, and you are listening to Oh Crap, I Love My Toddler, But Holy Fuck. This is a podcast for conscious parents who drop the F-bomb a lot. Hey, hey, you guys. Welcome, welcome. So I have some bad news. If you listen closely, you will probably hear nothing because bullshit, my rooster died. He died on Sunday and I was very sad. He was kind of an asshole, but he was my asshole and I miss his cock-a-doodle doing. I had no idea it became such a big part of my life and how much I enjoyed the sound of him. He got sick on Friday. I noticed when I took Maverick out for a walk, usually Maverick comes into my bed. The sun starts to come up. Maverick hits me to get up. And then we hear bullshit start to crow. And I didn't think about it much until we actually went out for Maverick's walk. And I was like, huh, I don't hear bullshit at all. That's interesting. And I went into the coop and he was just hanging around. You know, he looked good. His eyes looked good. He was at the water feeder. So I was like, all right, I don't know what's going on. It's egg hatching season, so roosters definitely get more protective. In fact, he's been quite feisty with me over the past month. And then Saturday came, still no crowing, no cockadoodle. And I went into the coop and he was still hanging out, looked good. His waddle looked good. His feathers looked good. Breathing looked good. And then midway Saturday, he got on a perch, one of the roosting bars. And that was odd because it was midday and he just kind of stayed there and Throughout the day, I could kind of see him physically like defluffing almost. So did all the Googling and I decided to isolate him. So early, early Sunday morning, I got the supplies ready to isolate him a little cage in this fenced-in area and I needed a tarp. And I went out to run 
one more errand and I told Pascal to move him to the cage. And by the time I got home, Pascal said, you know, I don't think he's going to make it, mom. And literally we went out and he had died. So chickens die. It's a thing. They die. It's pretty common. It's pretty common to have worms, parasites, mites. So we did all the things for the other chickens and they seem to be in good shape. And we should be getting another rooster maybe tonight or tomorrow. You have to catch them at night because they have spurs and they're quite aggressive. So we have a friend who has a couple of extra roosters and her son has to catch it at night. And then we have to transfer it to our coop at night. So it's this like clandestine deal done in the hours of the night. But anyway, wanted to let you know that's why it's quiet. God forbid if anything ever happens to Maverick and I have to make this announcement, I will not be able to contain it myself. Oh my God, I love that dog so much. Okay, moving on to the other loves in our lives are children. Can't say it's always big love. No, it's always big love peppered in with some frustration (laughs) and all the other emotions. So today I wanted to run through a couple of things and I want to start off with something I have been seeing all across the social webs. And I'm always interested how hashtags come alive. You ever notice you see like one thing online and then all of a sudden it's all over the place. And certainly there's that perception thing, you know, like when you're pregnant, you see everybody pregnant. When you're looking to buy a red car, all you see are red cars. But there are definite things in parenting that come up. Actually, I'll touch on one that I've been meaning to touch on, and that is evidence-based parenting. And this one is driving me up a wall because it's pretty silly. There are studies. We know there are things about parenting that we can point to some evidence, but we can equally point to where the evidence doesn't apply to every kid. I think it's pretty sketchy when we're talking about behavioral stuff to assume that there's evidence to point in one direction or another. And I think it's a rocky road to take. I think it's a slippery slope, I should say, as a parent to start touting evidence-based parenting because we are human. We have emotions. We not only come with our own DNA, but we are sensitive to our environment. Every kid has their own sensitivities. What works for one child may not work for another child. I have always, you know, said, even with my potty training book, look, I just have a bunch of tips and tricks. I have no concrete method that I say works with every kid. You know, every kid's going to have a different reaction to this milestone. Every kid is going to have their idiosyncratic, nuanced behaviors. So that is one thing that I'm seeing that, again, it's driving me up a wall because I think the thing I really dislike about it is it gives us the illusion that there is a right and a wrong way. And it gives us the illusion, it goes back to that thing that I talked about season one, I think I did a whole podcast on it, the idea that if you just have the code If you somehow unlock the magical code of parenting, your kid will be healthy, well-adjusted, stellar in all things, and it's up to you to find that code. And it leaves parents frantic. And there's so many variables in raising a human being that there is no magic code. The best we can do is show up, be present, be authentic, apologize when we make mistakes, and be willing to be the I always think of it as a duck pin bowling with the bumpers on the sides, like be willing to be those bumpers as we guide our small humans through 
life. And I don't want people to get caught up. I have worked with families so entrenched in the evidence and the research and finding the right path that they like completely ignore the kid in front of them and what that child might need. By having this child, and I would say by birthing this child, but I really believe this in in adoptive parents and all kinds of family situations, the child that you are raising is divinely meant for you. That is your code. You own the code. It is in yourself to be the best parent for that child. Yeah. And of course, again, I say this a lot. If you're listening to me here, you're in the upper echelon of parenting anyway, because you're listening to a parenting podcast. There are many, many, many parents who are not well-suited for their children. We know that, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm talking in a very specific range here. And there is no guarantee. I shared this story, I think, in Oh Crap, I Have a Toddler. Actually, they, they might have cut it because it seemed really harsh. I forget. But anyway, my mom's best friend growing up had six kids. And five of her kids are amazing college graduates, great jobs, healthy, good families, great kids. And then one, he's in and out of prison, has problems with drugs. It clearly wasn't his environment. The other five kids grew up in the same environment. Was it his perception of the environment? Maybe. Did he have certain things wrong with his parents? Just him? Yeah, maybe. One of the things, though, that always cracked me up is my mom's best friend always was like, yeah, I just, I don't even know what happened. She didn't ruminate on it. It wasn't a thing. She was like, yep, sometimes someone goes bad. You just, what are you going to do? Like, there was absolutely no responsibility, which I think maybe absolutely no responsibility isn't great. Think about us right now, this generation of parents and like one of your kids ends up in and out of prison. The parents today would probably, oh my God, be near suicidal. We would take so much responsibility. We would pathologize every past interaction and be like, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? And sometimes you don't do anything wrong. Everybody has their own path. And again, I believe it in a very divine spiritual way, but sometimes the wires get crossed and people go off the path. And so- The idea that somehow you can do it right and end up okay, it's kind of a crapshoot, got to be honest. So we do our very best and we try to support them the way we can. And so that's my gripe with this like evidence-based parenting is I just feel like people get so entrenched in the paperwork that they forget about the human. I think we're having a crisis of truth in our society at this moment in history, (laughs) but Evidence for what? There is actually plenty of evidence backing, say, something like spanking. You know, if you put spanking on Facebook, you're going to have every boomer plus chime in that they were spanked and they're just fine. There is actually evidence that spanking is not harmful. There is evidence to the contrary. We have evidence that, you know, breast milk is best. We also have evidence that formula is just as good and fed is best. So, What evidence? If you're saying you're an evidence-based parent, what evidence? You're picking your evidence, you know? And maybe your evidence is super child-led and I can go on the internet right now and find out how you should never reprimand your child and super child-led and never put a thought in your child's head how I can find evidence for that. I can also find evidence for the contrary. So again, I think it's just an internet catchphrase that is a huge trap. And so That is the first one that I've been seeing all about, hashtag (laughs) evidence-based. And and I actually worked with a couple once who had read 
all this evidence-based stuff out of Harvard about children's sleep and how much sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep. And I was like, wow, that's really great. I'm so glad your child's well slept. And she was like, well, because of our lives, he gets to bed at 10. And this was like a three-year-old. And I was like, you just led with all your evidence and your toddler's going to bed at 10 because we have evidence that that's not a great bedtime. And so again, we lose the forest for the trees (laughs) when we start thinking in those terms. The next thing I've been seeing online, and it's wild because I saw it and it, it piqued my interest and I'll tell you why. But then subsequently I was like, oh my God, is everybody saying this all of a sudden? And that is the phrase core memory. So you'll see a a lovely reel or short video or something on Instagram and either the caption or the comments are like that. There's a core memory for that kid. And I, I was like, core memory. And so the first time I saw it, I said, well, that's from inside out. And then I kept seeing it. And I said, okay, I have been in therapeutic fields since, holy cow, since the year 2000. And I never recall seeing this phrase, core memory. I never recalled seeing it in psychiatric training, in psychology, in child development. I never saw this term. To me, the term core memory comes from the movie Inside Out. So I went to the Google and I (laughs) found out that indeed it is not a psychiatric or a psychological, I should say, not psychiatric. It's not a psychological term at all. The actual definition of core memory is the former term for the main memory, which was composed of ring-shaped magnets called cores. It's a technical term. It's not at all a core memory. However, there is a part of the brain. The brain's hippocampus is the core memory processor. It compares all our new experiences to what we've known and seen before. So in this sense, it's not a core remembering memory. It's like the things that we learn in life, you know? We do X, Y, and Z this way, and when we get to a new situation, we can compare it, and then our brain says, is this, a, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? And we can ditch it or not. It's a processor, right? So it isn't the way they used it in Inside Out, which is cool because in Inside Out, we know what it means without even saying much at all because of that movie. And if you haven't seen it, I enjoyed that movie quite a lot. I thought it was pretty brilliant. However, it did get some things wrong about memory, and I'll go into that in one second. But we know in a jocular sense what it means, right? If you say, we're forming a core memory, hopefully this memory will stick in our child's life. It'll be formative. It may even start to form their personality. They will always look back on this fondly. It will be this steadfast memory that will stay with them forever. Uh, Wrong answer. Because guess what? Memories don't stay forever. So one of the sketchiest things about memories is how distorted they can become. And I had learned this a long time ago, which is when you remember something, you actually don't remember the event. You remember the last time you remembered it. So that is how memory gets so fuzzy. There's a great episode of, I think, Brain Games. Is that the one? Brain Games, I think it's called. They do all kinds of interesting things about the brain. And this one particular episode, they like recreated a crime. And then they asked all the people around and 
It was unbelievable how people's memory of the event, it was just flat out wrong. You know, like, oh, he was wearing a black coat. The guy wasn't wearing a black coat at all. Oh, he stole a green purse. The purse was red. The car behind it was green. So not only can memory be skewed like that because of an intense moment, but then the same people an hour later told a slightly different story. It got even more distorted. You know, I always thought that was really fascinating. And I always know it because my brother and sister and I grew up in the same house and we have completely different reports of things that happened, how events went down. Some events my brother can tell in technicolor and I have no recollection whatsoever. And so memory is about the most imperfect science there is. So the idea that, and if you think I'm harping on, we don't make memories, you're right, I am. Because this whole thing of this like idea that we can form a core memory It's just kind of not true. I think it's worth it because I'm inundated with this notion on Instagram. And so it skews your perception. You're like, am I doing enough core memories? What would be a core memory? I specifically wanted to address, though, like why Inside Out got it wrong. Because I think that movie literally formed some perception. Just the idea that people are using this term that comes from this movie in this way means that we're quickly accepting something as truth that isn't truth at all. And so this article is, I actually, all I Googled was core memory inside out. And I found this article on Vox, V-O-X. And it's just great. It's just two philosophers like talk about how the brain works and like sort of how inside out simplified it. So one of the things is that, you know, those luminous, colorful orbs filling the halls of Riley's mind are meant to represent her episodic memories, which are recollections of specific past events in her life, right? So that's anything. That would be a core memory or not. And of course, in Inside Out, they had it. These core memories were like even bigger. But the problem is episodic memory recall is much, much messier. Every day recall of past episodes in your life is more like imperfect reconstruction than it is high-def playback. In fact, the process of recalling episodic memory is so creative as to become distorting. The more you recall a given memory, the less accurate it becomes. Just calling to mind something that happened to you in the past will change your memory of that event just a little bit. Those revisions can accumulate over the course of many instances of recall. The more you try to remember, the less you actually remember. The science of memory distortion is well-developed. We know about a myriad of terrifying ways in which memory can get messed up. You can come to think you saw a person in one context when you actually saw her in another. In one notable case in history, a rail ticket agent identified a sailor in a lineup as the person who had physically assaulted him, when really that sailor was just a past customer. So that's trippy. You saw somebody in your past, and then you see them in a different context and a criminal context and put that together. The way you're asked about what you remember can manipulate the features of the memory itself. If you're asked to estimate how fast a car was going when it smashed into another, you're likely to recall a higher speed than you would if you had been asked how fast it was going when it hit another car. So I think that is very interesting. And then the third thing is even just imagining what an experience would be like can implant an entirely false memory of that experience in you. Monarch Legacy of Monsters, an Apple original series. The world is on fire. I decided to do something about it. 
on November 17th. This place, it's not ours. Believe me. The most massive event of the year arrives. If you come with me, you'll know everything, I promise. Oh my God, go, go, go! Monarch, Legacy of Monsters. Streaming November 17th, only on Apple TV+. Plus. So sometimes I think, maybe even sometimes this has to do with like lying and people remembering things completely wrong. It's misleading to say or to think that episodic memories are high definition records of things that actually happened and are crystallized forevermore in discrete capsules. You can look up the article. I just thought it was so interesting. And we also think that some of these memories will form who a person is. So in the context of Inside Out, Riley's her memories of hockey really formed her personality. And that has nothing to do with it. Memory doesn't really play into who you become. I don't know. It's just more of the human psyche that I just, I find it's wild. And one thing that we have had, I think I shared with you Pascal's third birthday. I called for a fire truck to go by with the siren on and the fire truck stopped. They had goodie bags. My friend owned an ambulance company. So I was like, well, if I got a fire truck, I might as well get an ambulance. He came by with an ambulance. And so then I called the cops and I was like, hey, if you could just drive by, let off your siren. They were like, no, we'll come to the party. So his three-year-old birthday party had a fire truck, a police car, and an ambulance. They got the hose going. It was ridiculous. I inadvertently raised the bar on all birthday parties without meaning to. (laughs) But what's so funny is at first... I remember Pascal was, I don't know, like maybe five or six. And I said something like, oh, don't you remember your fire truck birthday? And he was like, no, not at all. And I was like, what? And so then I started to recount the party for him and show him pictures. The next time I asked him about it, which might have been, God, even like a year later, he was telling details about it. So he wasn't remembering the event. He was remembering by telling him about the event. He was remembering seeing himself in pictures. So that is just trippy. Again, the only reason I'm bringing this up is because we go back to that notion that you can make a memory or that somehow this like amazing thing you're going to do with your kid is going to sit in their soul as is in a high definition playback for the rest of their lives and they'll love that forever. And it's just not the case. So live, live your life, make the memories. I just, I never think of making memories, right? And we know this, and I've said this a thousand times here, I know, but Don't go for anything because you think it's going to make a memory. Oh, we're making such good memories. No, do the thing because you want to do the thing. And your kid is going to remember the funniest thing about it. And out of all, we have done some really big things. Gosh, Pascal, I went to Bali with him. I think he was like nine. Do you know what his best memory of Bali was? FaceTiming his friends from Bali. (laughs) So That's not exactly what I banked on him remembering, That was his favorite part. And that's the part that he remembers the strongest. So I'm glad we went to Bali and I didn't go to Bali. So he would be like, oh, I remember that trip. You took me to Bali. Oh, and then we climbed an active volcano at dawn. And he remembers not breaking a sweat when my friend and I were like huffing and puffing. And again, he didn't really remember the sunrise. He didn't remember steaming eggs in the volcanic ash. He remembered beating us. It's just one of those things that memories are just always being formed. So stop trying to control your kid's memory and stop trying to make it a thing because it's it's driving me nuts. But I guess that's just personal. All right, let's move on. Okay, I want to talk real quick about the transition. The transition of when you get home. I think largely now 
everybody's back to quote unquote real life. We got kids in daycare. We have these pandemic babies who are now toddlers. They're having hard times. Transitions in particular seem to be a really hard time. And I think just managing that transition, which has always been a clusterfuck. It's the hours between somewhere between four and six, three and six, whether you stay at home, whether you work from home, whether both parents work outside the house, it doesn't matter. Everyone's tired and it's a clusterfuck and dinner has to be made and kids have to be put to bed in a reasonable time. And everybody's struggling. And this is the one thing I'm really, really noticing with these pandemic baby turned toddlers, which is transitions, transitions, transitions are the hardest. So I wanted to go through a few things just as a reminder. It's definitely something we've talked about before, but I think it's worth it. So first off, no matter what your situation, and I've worked with families in every type of work home situation, daycare situation, kids at home, doesn't matter. This applies for everybody. Cause again, everybody's at the end of their rope. Everybody's got no more gas in their tank and it's just a hard point for everyone. So we always go back to the notion of try to get all the nutritious food in your child before dinner. So dinner can be something easy, something, it can be that easy food. I don't know if you guys remember that episode where I talked about a client figured out that new challenging skillful food, food that maybe requires silverware or something like that. She discovered that she would do it in the morning or for lunchtime because dinner was a shit show. And so dinner was peanut butter and jelly. And that made her life 100% easier. So I encourage that for sure. We've gone through millions of times the earlier dinner or, you know, just the idea that a family meal at this time of your child's life, this season of your life, isn't of the most importance. Again, if you can do this flawlessly, your kids sitting down and eating a shit ton and dinner is pleasant and dinner's on the table at six, everybody's bathed and in bed by seven, seven thirty. I'm not here to fix something that's not broke. I just haven't seen this yet in any family with a toddler. So, so it leads me to believe it's not happening in too many places. And I know parents feel very strongly about manners and dinner time and that kind of thing. It will come. This socialized dinner behavior will absolutely come. But right now, if everybody's walking in the door at 4.35 o'clock, dinner's got to be on the table. Too much is happening at once and your child is not feeling connected. Remember the law. Here's the only parenting law. Like if I had to tell parents one thing and one thing only, it's connection breeds cooperation. When your child feels deeply connected to you, they will cooperate. Your life will go to automatic ease. Connection breeds cooperation. If your child is having fits during dinner, if your child, this is happening a lot, stalling, stalling, stalling bedtime, they won't let you go. You try to connect. You try to walk in the door. You try to spend 10 minutes reading a book and then they won't let you go. If it's more stories, no, more this, more this, more, 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 more wrestling, more playground, more this, your child is quite literally asking you for more. And that means they feel disconnected and that means they're not going to cooperate. And you're going to start trying to push them along the path of nighttime and they're not going to go along with it because they're feeling more and more desperate for that connection. However you can build in that connection, it will change your evening routine. I promise. So again, what I find is the biggest barrier is 
food, dinner. And so there are so many ways you can work around this, changing the time, easing up on the nutritional aspect, having a picnic, having the child bring an extra sandwich that the child can eat if they're in aftercare so they don't come home starving. But what it isn't is expecting the child to sit at the dinner if the child is having a hard time, wiggling, screaming, not sitting down, not eating, throwing their food. These are all expected toddler behaviors around food, but if it's from exhaustion and lack of connection, it's not worth it. It's so much better to spend that time connecting, have your child go to bed, and then you and your spouse can have a lovely dinner by yourselves if need be. Stalling bedtime. Again, you know, I've worked with so many families who they're like, God, it's just like they won't let me go at bedtime. And I'm like, just listen to yourself say that again. They won't let you go. Why would your child not let you go? It's not because they're being manipulative. It's not because they're being brats. It's not because they're being jerks. It's because they want you. They want more. So you have to build in more connection. Sometimes on these days, it's just not enough for the bedtime routine. And a bedtime routine should not take an hour, you guys. The bedtime routine should be like a story, uh, brush your teeth, go to bed. The wind down into bedtime might take a long time. And that might be like softer lights, slowing things down, maybe stop wrestling, stop big play, calm the nervous system a bit, right? So if your child is experiencing that they are in connection deficit. And I hear this all the time. No, 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 I give her connection. I give her connection all the time and she still wants more. Then she's in a deficit. She's in a deficit and she's in scarcity and she thinks she's not gonna get any more. Think about you, when you feel loved, when you feel emotionally satiated, even look at food, when you feel satiated by your meal, you don't want more. We only get into like endless junk food eating when we're eating like shit. If you eat a really healthy, nutritious dinner, you might want a piece of chocolate, but you're not going to like go drown yourself in a vat of ice cream. You're going to feel satiated. We only get into trouble when we're not fully satiated. And the same thing goes for connection. And it it goes for us as adults too. Like you get into all kinds of bad behaviors when you're not feeling loved and not feeling connected to people. Some of the things you might be able to do is right when you get home, I know that is the struggle time. And there are a couple of things that you can do. It doesn't always have to be reading books. It doesn't always have to be playing or wrestling or even the playground. One great thing is to find a sit spot in nature. And this is almost like a mindfulness technique, right? So you have a spot that you consistently go to and you can check out how it changes every day and every season, and it can bring you back to a place of home. So that could be in a park. It could be in your yard. It could be with your house plants if you're in an apartment in a city. Right now, where I'm at is, at least on my Instagram feed, is seedlings. Everybody has seedlings inside getting ready for the last frost so they can plant those seedlings. I mean, Pascal and I zone out on our seedlings all the time. Like we wake up and we check on them and, oh, look, they grew and there's another leaf. And so that could be a really calming, mindful way to connect with your child, bring their nervous system back down, calm and easy. And it's also just observant, right? So what's mindfulness? It's it's stopping and being observant of what's going on. And so again, if you can find a specific spot in your yard or at a local park where you could be like, geez, what changed? What changed from yesterday? Let's look around. Oh, well, this leaf here is a little more yellow. Look at that. It's fascinating because the seasons and how nature changes, it seems sudden, but wow, when we break it down day to day, we can really see the minutiae and it, it's really cool. And it's, it's again, another way to just calm the child, spend some good time together and get that mindfulness going. All right. 
to one more thing I wanted to talk about is I am hearing this a lot from clients, and I think it's a very interesting thing, which is when you, you know, your kid does something and you're like, oh, good job. And the kid looks right at you and says, stop saying good job to me. Yeah. Or I've seen this a lot recently too, is stop looking at me. Don't look at me. And parents get like, what is that? Why would a kid say, stop saying good job to me? Like he did a good job. What your child's really saying is stop over observing me and commenting on it. Just like it's pretty well accepted in society, we really shouldn't be commenting on each other's bodies, right? We really shouldn't. And even though, you know, I know sometimes people make a large effort to get in shape, you know, change their physique, lose weight. And sometimes you want to acknowledge their hard work or acknowledge that they gave it effort because you know they were really putting some effort into it. But we really know now, like, eh, don't comment on people's bodies. And I feel like this is a version of that, which is like, I'm just playing here, mom. Could you not comment on it? Stop looking, stop observing everything through a lens of achievement. Obviously, your three-year-old doesn't have those words. The problem is we tend to do a lot of empty cheerleading. Again, a subject we've covered, but we'll go a little bit deeper and also just serve as a reminder. Cheerleading is not being reflective, right? So you're not reflecting anything back to the child. Cheerleading has its place at games, (laughs) but we don't want to empty cheerlead our child through life. Good job. You did it. I have seen this taken to the nth degree and it goes into this realm of, I saw a friend, she had a, I think her kid was like five and like drew like a line and she was like, oh, good job. And I was like, good job. I've seen that kid draw a dinosaur. That's not a good job. That's a line. (laughs) So it's empty cheerleading and kids know that. So the best thing you can do is number one, Please, 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 please. If your child's in deep play, don't say anything. Don't comment on their play. It's their play. It's not yours to notice or to educate or to show them what they're doing. They're in it. And I don't know why they're in it. They may not be seeing the thing you're seeing. They may not be figuring anything brilliant out, but they're in it because it's interesting to them. Let that interest go and don't comment. You can loosely observe But what I find these days is we're constantly observing, trying to connect stuff to education. Oh, look, he's he's climbing the monkey bars. That's so good for his core, you know, or, oh, wow, he's doing this. That's like chemistry. Like we keep wanting to connect play to its educational counterpart. And it it doesn't quite work that way. And it really doesn't work that way when you're talking out loud to your kid. So the best thing you could do is shut up number one. So that would be the next thing, I guess, if I could say anything to parents is connection breeds cooperation. And also please shut up, please shut up a little bit more. And also they just maybe just don't want to be observed. And so things you could do is after your child's done playing or whatever, you could say, you know, Hey, I saw you working really hard. Do you want to tell me about that? You know, was that a struggle or, you know, you could offer some other words besides good job or or just reflect back to them. That is the best thing you can do. Whenever you want to praise, think instead, can I reflect back to them? Like, wow, I saw you super concentrating. What were you doing? And maybe they want to talk about it. Maybe they don't, but that's okay. If you keep reflecting back sort of the effort as opposed to the achievement, that is always the best way to go. But you can also just reflect not necessarily anything to do with what they were doing, but again, like, You looked like you were super concentrating. I love watching you concentrate, something like that. Because I I find that if a child's telling you directly, don't look at me or stop saying good job to me, 
That's a big tell that you're cheerleading. So just back off of that. All right. I had a couple of other meaty things to talk about, but as always, I run over and I don't like to make these too long and I will hit them up next time. As always, I love you guys. I appreciate you. I appreciate your patronage and your feedback and all your questions. Rock on. Okay. Bye everyone. Just a reminder, if you need additional resources, I have Oh Crap Potty Training. I have Oh Crap, I Have a Toddler. Those books are available everywhere you want to find a book. <laughs> you can also go to my website, jamieglowacki.com, where you can book private sessions with me, buy any of my courses. Those are really geared towards potty training help. And also, I'm on Instagram. I'm not on Facebook anymore, and I'm not on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, jamie.glowacki, and I do a lot of lives and uh, usually posting a lot of good information. So those are extra resources for you. And as always, rock on. Have an awesome day.